Good morning, Pure Church. That is so weird hearing yourself on a microphone. My goodness. <laughs> How are y'all doing today? Good. Awesome. It is Sunday. It is a good day. Sunday. Woo. Sunday. I'm going to start by asking you guys a very important question. Okay. Who believes in God Almighty here? Okay, that's like not very like excited, right? Who here believes in God Almighty? Yes, there we go. That's what I'm looking for. Who loves our God Almighty? Who fears our God Almighty? That was a little bit less than the love part. All right. Good thing we're talking about this today. Now, I want to ask you, what impact does God have in your daily life? I'm going to bet that there's people in this room who fear man more than they fear God. I'm also going to bet that there's people in this room who don't have a healthy fear of God. Either you are too afraid of him and he's just this mighty, you know, being in the sky, or there's an un a lack of fear for God. My goal today is to give you a glimpse into God's word. I unfortunately or fortunately don't have time to go into an entire comprehensive um, overview of what the fear of God is and how to apply it to your life and all the do's and don'ts. But I want to give you a, a glimmer of hope to start you on the journey to break free from this fear of man or this lack of fear for God um, so that you can love and serve God fully and ultimately rest in the fear of the Lord. So I'm going to start by asking you, what does the fear of God mean to you personally? Is it like fire and brimstone, like, oh my goodness, I just made a mistake and now God's going to send me to hell and kill me because I accidentally stubbed my toe and I dropped that bad word and now I'm just going to go to hell? <laughs> is God more of like this uh, greasy grace type of fear? Like, well, fear is Old Testament. We don't, we don't have to fear God anymore. That's just there, you know. Is fear no longer relevant today because we now have God's grace? Where on that spectrum is your understanding? And again, what impact does God actually have on your daily life? So today we're going to be looking at the life of Saul as a template for understanding, hopefully, a healthy perspective of fear. Um, specifically, we're going to be referencing 1 Samuel 15. Um, and I'm sure a lot of you know who Saul is and you know the context and all these things, but I want to go through a quick overview just for those who may not know. Um, back in the day, thousands of years ago, before Israel even had their first king, they had what are called judges. And judges were responsible for leading Israel, keeping them in line with God's word. The book of Judges is filled with this, this constant cycle of running from God. And then the Israelites are like, oh my goodness, we're being attacked, and now we're being overwhelmed, and God save us. And then they return to God for that salvation. They don't love God. They don't fear God. They fear the consequences. They fear um, like, oh my goodness, I guess I'm being affected now. I guess I'll turn back to God. Then comes Samuel, who is the very last judge um, and also the first known prophet of Israel. As he was starting to get older, the, the people of Israel were starting to kind of go back into that cycle. They were getting dissatisfied with how things were. They were looking at all the other nations around them. They saw, man, this nation over here, they have this king that leads them into battle. And guess what? We want that too. What they were asking for was not just a ruler over them. What they wanted was the world. They wanted to reject God 
so that they could replace him with a man that they could look up to as, you know, the equivalent. Samuel warned them that they were making a mistake and that one day they were going to cry out to God for relief, but he's going to reject their cries, but they refused to listen. So in this context, Samuel finds a 30-year-old farmer named Saul. Saul's first act as king of Israel, like get this, like this just blows my mind. His first act of, as king of Israel was at his um, ceremony where he was going to be announced to the people of Israel. He went and hid. He, he at least made it there, right? So he took that step. But he was like, okay, I panic. I've, I, I can't do this. I'm going to go and hide amongst this luggage or supplies or whatever translation you want to use. You know, he panicked. <laughs> That's a very common theme with Saul. Rather than stepping in his, his position as king, he ran from it. And after that ceremony, guess what he does? He goes back to farming. Saul was not a man of great faith, neither in himself nor in God. And I honestly wonder if he even really believed in God. So fast forward a few victories later, and like battles and things like that. The Philistines once again muster their armies, and they're, they're coming against Israel. Samuel tells Saul, okay, I'm going to be there after seven days, and I want you to wait for me, and then I will offer a sacrifice to God, and then you're going to um, go into battle after the sacrifice is completed by me. And after seven days, Samuel doesn't show up. And guess what Saul does? He offers a sacrifice himself. Now, I want to give you some perspective here. Like, honestly, when I look at Saul's life, so much of what he does, I can completely rationalize. Like, if I was just out there just trying to find these lost uh, animals one day, and then all of a sudden this guy's like, hey, you're going to be king of Israel, I'd be like, okay, I'm freaking out now. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, when Saul, Saul decides to offer these sacrifices to God, his men were running away from the battle. He had 600 men left versus thousands of Philistine chariots and, and uh, soldiers. The odds were very much stacked against Saul. And he panicked, just like any of us would have done in that situation. But instead of trusting in God, or sorry, instead of trusting in his logic, what he should have done is trust in Samuel. Because he rejected God's command there, uh, Samuel told him that his kingdom was going to be taken from him and given to a man after God's own heart. So this is all building up now to 1 Samuel 15. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, and we'll just kind of go through it uh, section by section here. Oh, you know what? Does anybody not have a Bible here? If um, we could have, um, Bob is going to grab some Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to raise your hand, and Bob will uh, get one to you. Okay. So I'm going to just go ahead and jump into this. First uh, Samuel 15, 1 through 5. One day Samuel said to Saul, Look, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. 
I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation, men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, donkeys. So Saul mobilized his army at Telayim. There were 200,000 soldiers from Israel, 10,000 men from Judah. Then Judah and his army went to a town of the Amalekites and laid in wait in the valley. Now, I'm not going to go into a rabbit trail of why was there 600 men just a few chapters ago, now there's you know, 210,000. That's in and of itself. But I want to just kind of address the elephant in the room here. If you're like me, your instinct when you read this is shock and horror, right? Saul isn't told to, okay, yeah, go and uh, conquer this land and develop the, the Israelite nation. No, he's told to go and completely eradicate an entire group of people, wipe them off the face of the earth. It's pretty horrendous. If, you, if you're being honest with yourself right now, that's a pretty horrendous act. But I don't want to get stopped there. The entire reason why this happened in the first place is because this is exactly what the Amalekites did to the Israelites back in the day. Um, just after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, the Amalekites are decide, you know what? We got this. Let's just let's go conquer these fools. Let's plunder their Egyptian treasures and take what's ours. And by God's grace, Joshua led a mighty victory over the Amalekites and destroyed them. And then Exodus 7, 14 through 16. And this is, I want to read these verses so you get the impact of what they did to the people of Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of God, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now we fast forward into Deuteronomy 25, literally just a few chapters before Moses' death, right? So you could consider this one of his dying wishes. He says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were, when you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey, attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. So when the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he has given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget the Amalekites attacked the weak, the easy to pick off. They tried to make a statement to the Israelites that they were nothing but dogs, that they should just return to their daddy Egypt and go back to slavery because there's no place for them in the real world. So when God tells Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekites, this is the context that we're coming up against. God wanted Saul to passionately vindicate Israel against one of their mortal enemies, this was the time for Saul to stand up and fulfill the Lord's command. How much passion do you think Saul had? How, do you think that he feared God or that he feared man? I mean, you guys already know the answer, I'm pretty sure, but we'll keep going. Verses 7 through 9, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. 
However, all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So Saul attacks the Amalekites and brutally destroys just about everything, but he kept the king alive and the best of the animals. They destroyed everything that was despised and weak, but they kept everything that was good. Is that what God asked Saul to do? Now, again, giving Saul some grace here, logic would state that Saul got a passing grade there, right? He, he, got, he probably got about a 98%. I mean, he destroyed just about everyone except for the king and some animals that they were going to give to God anyways, right? Is 98% is obedience close enough? Should God be pleased with that? No. Let's see what God thought about it. Now, verses 10 through 15. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Saul was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And Samuel was told, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, The people brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. How high and mighty is that? Now, I'm going to kind of back up here. God says, I regret that I have made Saul king. Does God have any regrets? God knows the past, present, and the future, right? So what is this verse saying here? Samuel is trying to portray the heart of God in this situation. How many here have felt God, the heart of God grieve over your family and your friends? When you see people run away from God and you just want nothing more than for them to serve God and to love him and to seek him, to find the goodness of God, how does that make you feel on the inside? You feel that heart of God. You feel that connection to them and you grieve. Samuel here was in anguish over Saul's decision to disobey God's word. Saul was so out of touch that he didn't even realize that he had messed up. Again, going back to what I said earlier, 98% obedience. I did good enough. In his mind, he brought a great destruction to the Amalekites, but that is not what God was asking for. God was asking for complete annihilation. So when Samuel finds Saul, he doesn't find a man who is in remorse or regretting or weeping over his sin or his choice to disobey God. He finds a man that took the glory of God from God and established a monument to himself in his honor. And then when Samuel confronts him, what does he do? Does he say, oh, you're right, I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't have done that. No, he blames his brothers. Now, how often do we play the blame game ourselves, right? Like, <laughs> real talk. Like, let's say, like, well, you know, God made me this way. My parents did this to me, or it's this circumstance or this weakness, and that's why I'm the way I am. 
Now, I want to be clear. It's okay to take the time to understand where you are, to understand your traumas and your hurts, but don't get stuck there, okay? You've got to keep moving forward. When God confronts you with sin, don't allow your instincts or your pride to take over. Trust in God. Repent in fear and trust him and his authority. Now, let me ask you another question. Do you really think that Saul thought that the soldiers were taking home the best of everything for a sacrifice to God? Yeah, I don't think so either. I think he knew that the ulterior motives there. And I think he knew that they were trying to build up their own personal wealth at the expense of God's command. Willful ignorance is not an excuse in God's kingdom, okay? We make all kinds of excuses for disobedience, right? It's too overwhelming. I already tried and failed. I can't do that. God didn't make me that way. I don't have what it takes. That's Wayne's job, right? Every time you make an excuse for disobedience, you're showing that you have no fear of God. Let's go to verse 16 through 21. Samuel said to Saul, stop. In other words, I don't know if I can say this in church. Shut up, dude. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you? Saul asked. Samuel told him, although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. And the Lord, the one who put you in this position, sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. It's starting to sound like a little kid kind of whining here. Saul insisted, I, I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, the goats, the cattle, the plunder, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. You would think that at this point in the conversation, after being confronted multiple times, Saul would have at least a little bit of introspection here, right? Okay, maybe there's some truth to what Samuel said. Maybe I don't fully get this here, but he doesn't. Does everyone here understand the term false humility? False humility is just as dangerous as arrogance. Arrogance is saying, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm better than you deal with it. Arrogance is choosing your ways over God's because you think that you somehow know better than God Almighty. False humility is, okay, I'm right, but I'll let you be right because I'm too humble to stand up for myself. It's a refusal to take God's identity and instead choosing your own identity. Both lack a submission and a fear of God. Humility, on the other hand, is saying, I'm right, but I don't need you to know that. It's not having to prove yourself to others because you fear God Almighty above everyone and everything else. Glory, to bring glory and honor to God's name. Fear in and of itself leads to false humility. But fear of God leads to true humility as you start to learn your true status and your position in this world. 
So Samuel here is calling out Saul's false humility. Saul did not take hold of who God made him. Instead, he ran from it. He refused to try to see how God saw him or how to be the blessing to Israel that a king should be. Instead, because he was scared, he ran from his identity. It wasn't his own strength or ability that got him to the position where he was at. It was God's working in his life. Now, you would think that Saul at this point would have an idea of, hey, God himself appointed me to this position. Therefore, God is behind me. God is backing me. I have the power of God on my side, right? Do you realize that when God asks you to move, when God tells you to do something, he's with you every step of the way. Allow God to empower you as you walk into his will. Don't allow fear to isolate you or fill you with anxiety. Now, this does not mean that you're always going to feel great. It doesn't mean that you're always going to feel close to God. It doesn't mean that things are always going to go the way you want them to. You're walking into God's will, right? That means there's going to be tension. There's going to be confrontation. There's going to be difficulties. But the joy of surrendering is that even in the midst of that difficulty, you can still rest in God's sovereignty. Does that make sense, resting in God's sovereignty? He's got it under control. You don't. <laughs> so stop trying to control it all. Let go and let God. Give me one second. I'm going to grab my water. First Samuel 15, 22 through 23. Now this, in my opinion, is one of the most powerful and difficult verses in the entire Bible. And I don't want to linger here too long. There's a lot that I could say here, but there's going to be a few points that I want to bring up. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifice or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than the offering of the fat of rams. In other words, stop doing what you think God wants you to do and do what he actually wants you to do. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, and stubbornness is bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now, Think about all the energy, the fear, the, the anxiety that we have over the kingdom of darkness. Because Saul was 98% obedience, Samuel equated his sin with, when we choose to do our own thing, even though we know what God wants us to do, we're building the kingdom of darkness rather than the kingdom of light. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? We're, our fight is against the spiritual powers of darkness. Yet how in my heart have I been rebellious to God Almighty? Now, I want to make something clear. This is not about legalism and perfectionism and performance. Those are not biblical in the New Testament Bible. 
I am not saying that every single time we sin, that we promote the kingdom of darkness. And I'm not saying that if you stumble and you make a mistake, oh, I just stubbed my toe and I just dropped a bad word, oh my goodness, that you've committed evil. Every single one of us in this room have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. It's about our heart. If you feel the guilt over your sin, if you're fighting it, you're not in that camp. If you're making progress of stepping into the uncomfortable things that God is calling you to, like standing up here and preaching in front of you guys, even though I have so much social anxiety, it's not even funny. (laughs) Thank you. You're not in this camp. But if you've grown apathetic in your relationship with God, or you're prioritizing material things, politics, entertainment, over your relationship with him, you really need to look into your heart. And you need to determine, do you have a healthy fear of God? 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the world. Praise God. It's not up to us. At this point, I think we've established that the best we can do is pretty much nothing compared to God. We can't save ourselves no matter how hard we try. The Old Testament was great at telling us what to do, but it was powerless at actually allowing us to live the things out. The law cannot change our hearts. Legalism cannot change our hearts. Perfectionism cannot change our hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can. Let's go into 1 Samuel 15, 24 through 31. Then Saul finally admits to Samuel, Okay, I've sinned. I've disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command, for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. But now please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Is his motive there to worship the Lord? We'll keep reading. But Samuel replied, I will not go back with you. Since you have rejected the Lord's command, he has rejected you as king of Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. Whew, that hurts. And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind. For he is not human that he should change his mind. In other words, Saul, you messed up for the last time. You're done. Now for the reason why Saul was so terrified about Samuel leaving, the reason why he tore his robe, Saul pleaded again, I know I've sinned, but please, but, 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 please, at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Notice the Lord your God, at least in the translation that I'm using here. So Samuel finally agreed and went back with him, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Man, I could go into that, but I'm not going to. Saul is still so worried about his appearance. 
He doesn't care about restoring his standing with God at all. His entire motive here is all about people liking him, people looking up to him, feeling honored, feeling empowered. It's all about him. So even though he finally so-called humbles himself and he confesses the root issue here, that's the entire reason why he lost his kingdom, why Samuel rebuked him so harshly. Now, I want to make a very important clarifying remark here, or I guess a question. Was it Saul's disobedience that brought him to ruin, or was it his heart? Should we be walking around afraid of our own shadows in case, you know, we accidentally displease God? Short answer is no. In this context, I would argue that Saul knew very well the gravity of what God was asking him to do, and he knew that he should not have allowed the men to take the spoils. But instead, he made light of the sin and chose to willfully disobey. The issue here is not that Saul made an accidental mistake. The issue here is the heart behind that mistake. Again, to make it super clear, Saul was not punished because he failed at 2% of God's command. He was punished because he was the head of Israel, and rather than fearing God and establishing God's reign, he disrespected God and chose to disobey him. His heart was in the world. His heart was in pleasing people. His heart was not in pleasing God. Let's take a step back here. Now, do you remember what, what you thought when I asked you about what the fear of God means to you? Let's pull that back up out of the archives here. Um, I'll be honest. There's a lot of you here who probably understand the fear of God way better than I do or probably ever will, okay? But just to kind of give an elementary understanding here just so we're all on the same page. The original words in, in the Bible, in both Hebrew and Greek, used for fearing God, indicate reverence, awe, and respect for God's holiness and his authority. So it's reverence and awe, right? Oh my goodness, we, we are so good as the American church of watering that down. What does awe and reverence actually mean? Our God is an awesome God, right? That was, okay, there's one amen up in that. Our God is an awesome God, right? Yeah. Amen. Does that thought terrify you? Yeah. Let's step into Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah, in, in the year, sorry, this is verses 1 through 4. You don't have to flip to it. It'll be quick. Um, it was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations. The entire building was filled with smoke. 
Do you think at this point Isaiah was standing there with warm fuzzies thinking about how great of a daddy God he serves? <laughs> Do you ever shake and tremble in God's presence, realizing who you're kneeling in front of? How often are you in awe of his majesty, the reality of how powerful and mighty he is, that he can create and destroy galaxies with the word of his mouth? Every single good thing in your life comes from him. He enables you to become someone that you never thought you could be. When you truly encounter God Almighty and you see him for who he is, you will be shaken. Isaiah 6.5, so this is Isaiah's response to what just happened. Then Isaiah said, it's all over, I'm doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Isaiah was a mighty prophet, right? He wrote one of the longest books in the Bible, full of prophecy. He prophesied about the Messiah. You know, there's a lot to you, this guy. He was a powerhouse of the prophets. And yet this man saw himself as a man of unclean lips, what Isaiah is confessing here is the contrast between unholy humanity and a perfect God. There is no good enough when it comes to holiness. We follow then the, the story from Isaiah 6 to Isaiah 8.13. It says, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. That doesn't preach very well in today's church, does it? Now, if you think fearing God is only Old Testament, let's bring it to the New Testament, right? Matthew 10, 28. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Revelations 21, 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars... They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's a lot of verses like that in the New Testament. And I would love to read them all for you, but I feel like you would get really bored or just run away in fear. I don't know. But I want to start here. We've laid some really good groundwork here, establishing the fear of the Lord. Now I want to bring it into some balance. I think a lot of preachers get stuck here when they preach about the fear of God. And they don't move into what is beyond the fear of God. Consequently, you have people who are so afraid of their own shadows that they're afraid to walk with God because they're afraid of, if I accidentally stumble and make a mistake, God's going to smite me, so I need to be perfect because just like God is perfect, I need to be perfect, which is not what that verse is saying, by the way. It says, be holy as I am holy, not perfect as I am perfect. In the New Testament, we have a weapon that did not exist in the Old Testament. Does anybody know what it is? Holy Spirit, that's part of it. Christ in us? Okay, what allowed the Holy Spirit to come to this earth? Jesus is close. Just before that, he died on the cross. Jesus' blood is our secret weapon that we have now. 
His blood allows us to have the Holy Spirit in us. It allows us to be connected with God, to become his children. Romans 8, 3 through 4. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Can I get an amen on that? Jesus' blood bought our salvation. It bought our right standing with God. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might have adoption as sons. And because we are all his sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, I want to reiterate this as well as I possibly can. You could not save yourself even if you tried. If you think that you're saved just because well, I do some good things, and I'm not as bad as this person over here. You're wrong. You are not going to be saved because you're good enough. There's one way that you can be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. The last verse in this section I'm going to read is 1 John 4:18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Wait a second. That sounds contradictory to everything that I've been talking about up to this point, right? There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I want to make an important distinction here. When you fear something, usually you avoid it, right? So, like, for example, I am terrified of spiders, real talk. And my wife, Judy, graciously kills all the spiders for me, so I don't have to do it. <laughs> Sometimes she gets embarrassed over me because I just run and I just, you know, curl up in a fetal position against the corner of the wall and just hide. But uh, thankfully, Judy saves the day every time. You know? That's fear. That's what we think of when we think of fear. The fear of God is different. The fear of God doesn't push us away. It doesn't say, okay, come back later when you have paid this much penance for your sin. The fear of God says, come to me, know me, understand me, fall in love with me. It draws you in. It doesn't push you away. And that is the, ultimately the difference between a healthy fear of God and an unhealthy fear of God. Where's your momentum with God? Are you moving closer to him? Are you pushing yourself away from him? Now, here's the reason why I'm talking about the fear of God. Because this is foundational for our lives. It's foundational for our faith. It's foundational for our love with him. 
Before you can ever love God, you have to fear him. Now, in your love for God, what is he to you? Is he sovereign God Almighty? Or is he more of a, a buddy and an ally? Hey, hey Jacob, you want, or Jacob, wow. Hey, God, you want to come play soccer with me? That's not who God is. What impact does God have in your daily life? Are you able to grasp the reality of God? If you don't have a healthy fear of God, you will love the idea of God, but you'll never be able to love God himself. You're never going to be able to adequately love him and his people because you don't take the time to understand who he is. But once we understand who God is, all the stuff that I've talked about up to this point, once we understand the power of God, we understand the greatness of God, we're able to um, begin to grasp the depths of his grace and his mercy for us. Without that fear, we'll never be able to do that. We still worship the same God today who exiled Israel for their sins, for the re rejection of God, who uh, swallowed up the sons of Korah for their rebellion, who killed Ananias and Sapphira. But this is the same God who loved his creation so much and had pity for us, wanting us to step into that place where we can glorify and worship him with our lives. So he sent his son to die for us. The same God saw you in your previous state, and while you were still a sinner, while you were still in your mess, in your crud, all the things that you look back on your life and you regret because you were running from God, he saw you there, and he knew that you could not make that decision for him on your own, but he wanted you, so he chose you. He picked you up out of the mess. This is the almighty God that we serve. If we can't grasp what he has saved us from, we will never understand the depths of his goodness. And we'll never be able to give him the love he deserves from the deepest depths of our hearts. We don't love him because it's a cultural thing to do, right? We don't love him because our church is a great social club. We don't love him because Wayne preaches such inspirational fire messages on Sundays. We love him because he has saved our souls. Do you realize what you deserve? Do you realize what eternal torment feels like? God saved you from that. Does that fill you with love and joy and excitement? Does that make you just want to scream like, thank you, Jesus Christ, for saving me? Yeah. It does for me. As Christians, the fear is different. We no longer fear his wrath and his torment. We don't fear, oh my goodness, I just stepped on a bug and I killed one of God's creation, now I'm a murderer, now God's going to kill me, right? <laughs> we know as Christians, we know our faith, we know what he is capable of. And we realize that we deserve every little bit of punishment that he is going to give to the world but we fear him and we revere him 
And because we fear him, we love him even more because we know that he has chosen us and saved us from that destruction. Now, what am I saying here? The overall synopsis of what I'm trying to say in this, uh, this part is don't get stuck at the concept of fearing God and fail to, more, fail to move forward into loving him. Fearing God leads to relationship and intimacy. Fearing God allows his spirit to change us from the inside out. Fearing God leads us to love our brothers and our sisters. Imagine what a great king Saul could have been if he had these principles in place. If he truly believed in God and saw God for who he is, feared him and loved him as his people, he could have been radically different. But because he chose himself over God, God chose to use his replacement, King David, who is the man after God's own heart, who became the role model and the greatest king of all of Israel. Now, so Saul's biggest issue is that he didn't have fear of God. Uh, honestly, I don't even know if he believed that God existed. The other issue was fearing man. Who here has insecurity and anxiety and all that? Okay, there's about 30% of honest people in this room. Great. I fully believe that once we have a healthy fear of God in place, the fear of man is no longer relevant. If you are, you know, let's say, let's, let's use UCAN Ministries. That's the easy, easy thing to pick on here. Let's say you're afraid of opening or knocking on a door and inviting. I could be afraid of what that person could do to me, or I could be afraid of, of man, God has given me an opportunity here. I love God. God has given me a gift, and I'm going to share that with him or with, with these people, and I'm going to try to see if they would want to find the joy that I have. And the fear is that not that you have displeased God because you failed. The fear is that, how do I say this? Yeah, how they'll react. The, the, fear is, the fear should be, are you building God's kingdom or not? Are you trusting in God or not? Where is your relationship with him? Where is your direction? Where is your trajectory in this life? Are you growing in him or are you running from him? Who is God to you and what impact does he have in your daily life? Hebrews 13.6 says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear for what can man do to me. Right? Galatians 1.10, which um, Ryan, actually Ryan read both verses from my sermon, which is awesome. Um, for I am not seeking the approval of man or of God. Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of God. The two are completely incompatible. You cannot fear man and serve God. You cannot serve two masters. Am I right? Now, again, to reiterate this, we don't love people because we're afraid of them or because we want them to, be, uh, to like us, right? 
So all the people pleasers in your room, I would say lift your hands, but you probably do it because I'm telling you to, not because you want to, because you're a people pleaser. I know how that goes. We love people because we fear and love God Almighty who commands us to do so, right? We love even those who are hard to love or those who annoy us, those who have run away from God, those who don't do things the way that we would do them. Oh, this denomination over here, they're silly. They just do all these weird things and we don't, we don't like them. We, do, we have our comfort zone here, right? That's not biblical. I encourage you to read 1 John 4 at some point um, this week. There's so much depth to it. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Perfect love casts out fear, right? We've already read that verse. We're here. So if you love, fear is not a part of the equation. doesn't mean that you're not going to feel afraid, just to make that correlation. But perfect love casts out fear. So I'm going to read 1 John 4, 17 through 21, because this is foundational. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We don't have to fear punishment anymore, people. We have been saved We've been sanctified by God Almighty. The same God who is so powerful to create the universe has saved you. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. I'm not going to go into rabbit trail about the whole definition of love and what that looks like and how we should enable this in our daily lives. I mean, it's already pushing time here, so I don't have another three hours to go into that. But where's your heart? It is perfectly natural to give into the drama, to give into the vendettas, to give into the oh my goodness, Daniel over here is just so, like, he just looks at me all the time with this really serious face and, you know, just, I can tell he's just tearing me down and I don't like him. Or I could be like, Daniel, hey, dude, let's have coffee. Let's get to know each other a little bit. <laughs> it's okay. You can read First John 4 and we'll, we'll have coffee sometime, okay? All right, great. <laughs> Where's your heart? James 4.17 says, and if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it's a sin for them. So you see, the fear of God drives us to love others and to lay down our lives for them, not fear them. What is your motive for relationships? Are you trying to seek validation from others, love and acceptance, trying to feel good, trying to feel accepted? Do you give with the expectation of return? Or do you love as Jesus did, self-sacrificing yourself and serving our Father in heaven? Now, I want to balance this as well, because if you're like me, you take verses like that and, 
and preachers like this, and you, you twist it out of proportion and say, okay, well, I don't need to sleep. I don't need to eat. I don't need to take care of myself. I just need to serve God all the time until I burn out, and then God just takes me home because I die from stress overload. That's not realistic either, right? There has to be that balance. The issue is not the performance. The issue is the heart. Now, I'm going to start bringing us to a close here. I want you to pause for a few seconds and consider an area in your life that you're not allowing God to take over. I want you to carry that with you this week, and I want you to pray and seek God on that thing. What is God calling you to do in your life? Step into ministry? Call an old friend that doesn't believe in God? Donate your time to helping the local food bank? What sin have you downplayed in your life? What is your version of this all? I'm just going to give us like probably 10 seconds here. I want you to try to think of something here. What does that look like to you? To actually be able to do that thing that God is calling you to do. Again, if you're like me, you're very independent. You like to do things on your own without any help from people. You just think, all right, I got this. I'm comfortable here. I mean, naturally, I'm an introvert. I don't do well with people, okay? I love people. I love being around people, but I can only do about two to three hours at a time at the most, and then I got to go home and recharge my social tank, you know? We need help. You cannot do that thing on your own. Okay? I'll be honest. I was terrified to come up here and preach. I mean, there is nothing that terrifies me more than coming up here, speaking the word of God to people, knowing that I am submitting my life and my heart to God, and God, I'm allowing God to speak through me to you, that I can actually have an impact on your lives for better or for worse. That terrifies me. There's a lot of, like... When you come up here to preach and you go through this emotional roller coaster of preaching, it's like, it's wild, you know? And all I can do is just pray to God Almighty that he can use this to further his kingdom and bring glory to his name. I chose to come up here today because of Wayne, basically. Wayne pushed me to do something that I was not comfortable with, okay? I'm not coming up here and preaching to you with a holier-than-thou attitude of, look at me, I have all this figured out, and you guys just need to listen to me. No, this is my struggle too, okay? This is something I've dealt with from the time I was born all the way through now. I'm probably going to struggle with for the rest of my life, as will most of us. My attitude here is one of grace and sympathy. We have to work together as the unified body of Christ to allow his will to be done on, on this earth and not allow our excuses and our drama and our social isolation to keep us from that. We have to fear God, respect him, awe him, know who he is, look at him as he is, not for how we want him to be, right? We have to do that above all else and start every single day in that state of mind of awe and reverence from God knowing fully well 
what every single person in this room deserves and what God has done for us, how great his salvation is in our hearts. We have to believe, and we have to believe absolutely. It's not going to be an overnight change, right? Now, I'm not coming up here and being like, all right, if you don't wake up tomorrow and you have the fear of God all down, then you're going to be like, you know, might as well just, you know, call Jesus and be like, yo, I don't think I can do this. I give up. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. This is a process. It's a series. It's a, it's a constant cycle of learning and growing and making mistakes and picking yourself up and getting back at it. But if the church, just think about this for a second. If the American church, or I'll say the Western church for lack of better terms, was able to grasp fear of God, not as a source of terror and control, because there's been a lot of that in the church too, but as a foundational truth to our relationship with him, God's kingdom would be unstoppable on this earth. Now, I'm going to repeat the question that I asked at the very beginning. Okay? Who here believes in God Almighty? Who here believes in God Almighty? Amen. Who here loves our God Almighty? Who here fears our God Almighty? That was better than the first time. I'll take it. And most importantly, what impact does God have on your daily life? Answering that question alone will tell you whether or not the fear of God is present in your heart today. I pray today that you will search your heart and align yourself with God's will, that you will stop serving the world and your idols, and instead turn to him completely and allow his spirit and his freedom to reign in your heart.